now to Luke chapter 11. We made it through verse 13 last week, so we'll pick up with verse 14, Luke chapter 11. Beginning with verse 14, it, well, it sets it up by Jesus casting out a demon of a guy who um, wasn't able to speak, and then he was able to speak. And so some of them accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, verse 15. Beelzebub literally meant the Lord of the flies, but it was a term that usually referred to uh, Satan. And so they're saying he's casting out demons using demonic power, which if you think about it very long, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so Jesus pointed out to them, he, uh, other people were testing him and asking for a sign from heaven at the same time. So it was torn between people who were criticizing him and people who wanted to see more magic. And he knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan um, also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So he says, how in the world would Satan have anything to gain by demons being cast out? So you're saying that, but it's contradictory as you know, a, a house that's turning on itself can't stand. Um, an interesting principle, uh, Ben Franklin latches onto it in some of his writings and um, alluded to it as the country was forming and when uh, Franklin said, either we will hang together or certainly we will hang separately. And it's just as true today. It's important that people who are on the same side remember that and not be tearing down those who are on our side. Uh, those who are with us aren't the ones we want to be attacking. Um, but then he goes on and says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they had some guys that were casting out demons. So they said, if I'm doing it by Satan, how are the, the exorcists that you know do it? And, uh, and then he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, if it just happens that it's actually God who is doing this. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So he says, you know, you're seeing either something that completely doesn't make sense, that I am defeating the forces of Satan by the power of Satan, or you're seeing me doing something by the finger of God, and the kingdom of God is here. And he said, it's really obvious when there's someone who's strong, who has weapons, and he's protecting himself, it takes a stronger one to come in and take his weapons away from him, disarm him, and tossed him out of the, of the, of the city. And uh, this is something that Paul talks about the same idea over in Colossians chapter 2, around verse 10, I think, or no, 15, a little later. It's over on the right side of the page, about a third of the way down. But, but you know, he talks about the fact that principalities and powers have been defeated by, um, by Jesus. 
And so he's going with that same idea. And, he, and then he says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you can't be neutral. Either I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm God, or I'm not doing this and you're being fooled and I'm a fraud. Or somehow I'm satanic and using the powers of the, you know, of the uh, demons in order to do what I'm doing. Make up your mind. These guys were kind of wanting to sit on the fence. They were like, well, you know, I don't know, Jesus. Maybe if you do a few more tricks, maybe we'll believe. I'm not sure if you're a good guy or not. But everyone is forced to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because he made such radical claims about himself that either he was telling the truth or he's a complete liar. As C.S. Lewis so famously talked about, you know, that he... He made such radical claims that either he's the Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, and you, you have to decide. If he's a liar, he's not good. So as C.S. Lewis said, don't give me any of this nonsense about Jesus being just a good teacher. A good teacher wouldn't lie, and Jesus claimed to be God. So Jesus here is saying that concerning himself and saying, you, you need to choose. As Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. And now in verse uh, 34, he says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. He says if, if demons are thrown out and the place is all cleaned up, but nothing else changes, then what's to keep them from coming back in and going, I miss this place? And what he is saying here is it's not enough just to reform. It's not enough just to go, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. When, when we cast out the influence of Satan from our lives, when we accept Jesus Christ, when we decide that it's time for us to live a, a different sort of life, it's really important that when the house is clean, we fill it. See, it's not enough just to stop doing stupid things. There are all kinds of people who feel bad about something that they've done, and then they decide to not do it again. And I, and I thank God that's a start. That's good. A lot of people give up certain habits or certain behaviors because they realize they're destructive. But Jesus is here warning, make sure that when you have space that you fill it, namely that you are filled with the Spirit of God. You can't just go part way with God. If you, you know, if you give the devil an opportunity, he's going to take it. And if you just sort of want to walk with God, you're halfway in and halfway out. You're asking for trouble. I've seen this happen so many times where people reform and they, decide, they drop their habits, but then they do good for a while, but then you don't see them really filled with the Spirit. And eventually, sometimes something much worse happens when it hits them later. I knew a guy over at Calvary who had been a Christian for quite a while and was a good guy, but he was going through some depression and stuff. And 
He had been saved from a real serious heroin addiction. And, you know, he had a bad couple of weeks. A girl didn't like him or whatever. And he ends up down in a motel on Harbor Boulevard, and he took heroin. Hadn't taken it for a few years. But he took it, and he took it at the same dose that he used to take when he was addicted to it, and he just died instantly right there. And I, and I believe and hope and pray that he is with the Lord. But you see the principle that's there. I mean, I don't think God judges somebody for being whacked out and out of their mind. But the principle is you've got to make sure that you fill your life with God so that then you don't give opportunities for evil to come in and create more problems. So then he says... uh, It happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. Basically, this woman was saying, Boy, isn't Mary amazing. She bore you. She nursed you. What an amazing woman. Now, Jesus and and the angel both said that Mary was blessed among women, but look at what Jesus responded. He didn't say, no, Mary's not blessed, but he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus wasn't jumping on the Mariolatry bandwagon. He wasn't, and he would say nothing, he never said anything bad about Mary at all, and I don't think we should either. I I don't like it when Protestants kind of bag on Mary because, well, you know, we're not those Catholics who make her co-redemptrix or something like that. Of course, that's incorrect. But what Jesus said is, if somebody just listens to the word and obeys it, you're more blessed than someone like Mary who would never really get much of an opportunity to walk with God. We don't see anything of her following his resurrection, really. She's there, and then we don't know where she is. She wasn't assumed into heaven, by the way, but she just, who knows, maybe she didn't live much longer, maybe she just faded into the background, But what he is saying is, yes, she was blessed to bear me, but you guys get to also have me. I said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so we have Christ living in our heart as the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so that is much better than just having Jesus as a baby and delivering him and nursing him And, of course, I believe that Mary, she was there on the day of Pentecost, and and she probably experienced then being filled with the Spirit as well. And so Mary would attest, certainly, hey, believe me, it's better this way than having a baby in a barn that's the Son of God. And so Jesus just putting that perspective on it. While the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation, It seeks a sign. They were always asking him to do tricks. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Jonah being in the whale for three days, in another place Jesus talked about as as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be dead for three days and three nights. So Jonah going into the whale was a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. When he got puked out, 
and came back to life. And people differ as to whether Jonah was actually dead. A lot of the language he used seemed like he was talking like he was actually died and rose from the dead. Uh, J. Vernon McGee takes that position. I don't think it's necessary, um, but I do think that he was a picture of Jesus dying and raising from the dead. But not only that, he preached and great things happened. So he says, you want to see a miracle, you'll see the resurrection. There's no need for anyone to demand any further miracle from God. You shouldn't need to go to a, to a revival meeting and have your cavities filled with gold in order to know or to feel, you know, see angel feathers floating down or some phony healer going up there and stretching one of your legs to be as long as the other one and that kind of, or slaying you in the spirit or whatever. Come on, Jesus rose from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. You really need another trick? You really think that if he would come up and say, you know, pick a card, any card, that then you'd believe? And that's what Jesus is saying. Come on. When it comes, I'll show you a miracle that nobody can possibly duplicate if you want a sign, but it'll condemn you as well. But he goes on to say, as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, and remember Jonah preached and they repented, he said, the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, and you could read about her in 1 Kings chapter 10, she'll rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So he says, look, there are going to be witnesses against you. You hear Jesus preaching and you reject him. Someday the queen of Sheba is going to say to you, you idiot. I mean, I journeyed way across country in order to hear the wisdom of Solomon. You're sitting there listening to Jesus and you didn't care what he said. I mean, you won't put out the effort to listen to him. And then the people in Nineveh are like, hey, we heard Jonah preach and we repented. You guys are hearing Jesus preach, and you're not repenting? So he basically said, there's no uh, excuse for you guys to be rejecting me. Now he says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. A basic principle that what you have a light for is so that you can see with it. Um, some people leave lights on after they leave a room, but uh, that's not what he's talking about. Because he says the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, you're, or healthy, literally, your whole body also is healthy, full of light. When, the, when your eye is bad or unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark... The whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. What's he talking about? A light can give light, but it's only going to do good to you if you have a good enough eye to be able to see it. Because the eye is the lamp of the body. That is, the eye is how the rest of the body can perceive what it sees with its eye. If you are blind, a light means nothing. Nothing. 
His implication is, you guys aren't healthy. You're not seen. There's nothing wrong with the light. There's something wrong with your eyes. And so he's getting down to the thing of, you know, and often we think, oh, I wish God would just do this so people could see, or if he would only do that. I mean, people think that if we could find the ark, you know, then people would believe, or if we could find the ark of the covenant, then people would believe, or more evidence of scientific support of what the Bible says, and then people would believe. The truth is the reason people don't believe is that they're blind. There's nothing wrong with the information that they already have. That's why it's a waste of time to continue to argue with people who don't really want to see the truth. Because until someone touches their eyes, until they begin to see, and often it takes a catastrophe or a difficulty or you know something else before all of a sudden they begin to see reality for what it is. Until that happens, you're not going to do any good. I don't care how bright the light is that you shine. In Jesus' case, he was the light of the world. And yet, a lot of people just couldn't see it. The problem is with our eyes. The problem is not with the light. And so Jesus is just saying, just because you don't get it doesn't mean there's something wrong with what I'm saying. There's something wrong with you as to why you don't get it. Now he kind of, he went to dinner, and it's interesting, he went to dine with a Pharisee. He went in and sat down to eat, and when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. So Jesus goes over to dinner with a Pharisee, and he didn't go wash his hands before he ate. Um, There are a whole lot of reasons why he wouldn't need to wash his hands, but this is probably a reference to ceremonial washings. They had a great um, process that they would go through, the Pharisees, before they would eat. And it involved pouring water on your hands as you're holding them up, pouring water on your hands as you're holding them down, a special way of cleansing them, oil being massaged into them, a very detailed process that they would go through to make sure that nothing impure would come into their mouth when they would eat. But Jesus was like, what do I need to do that for? And, and they were kind of offended that he didn't go through that process. But Jesus used it as a teaching opportunity. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. He said, you guys are clean on the outside, but you're a mess on the inside. Nice to the host. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? I mean, and there's a certain truth to that as well that, that we know now scientifically that, you know, yes, by using antibacterial soap and things like that, um, we can certainly remove certain germs before we put them in. But the truth is, every one of us has germs inside of us that are way worse than anything on your plate, And uh, at least what's on your plate is usually fairly fresh germs. And what's inside of you is a complete mess. And he's just going, look, God made it. He made the outside. He made the inside. Don't be so paranoid. It's funny how people today believe that if they wash their hands, which almost always when people wash their hands, they don't use soap. They just use water. And they think maybe hot water will do it. Well, 
In order to kill germs, the water would have to be so hot you couldn't even put your hands in it at all. And without soap, the water doesn't wash anything away. If anything, it kind of stirs up the germs and helps them to slide onto your spoon. So, but Jesus is just ridiculing the whole process. Like, what am I worried about? He was, he was God. He wasn't worried. And so he said, you guys, you need to look at the inside. So he says, but rather give alms as such things as you have. Then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and you pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What he says is, see, these guys were being very meticulous in how they would tithe. And they would tithe of every herb that they would have and every little detail because it mattered what people thought of them. But at the same time, they ripped people off and they had a lot of things that they had got you know, unrighteously. And he said, well, how about when you start giving away the stuff you have, and the implication is the things that you have that you shouldn't have, um, that might show that you're starting to get it. He, Jesus uses giving sacrificially as, as opposed to tithing as an example of somebody whose heart's really been changed, as someone who is really different. And until, he says, you start giving of what you have rather than just skimming off the top for a tithe, then, you know, you don't, there's no justice, you're not, you're not clean, there's no evidence that you are anything that's uh, righteous at all. Now, he did say that, you know, it's good that you tithe. He said, this you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So Jesus said, yeah, it's good that you tithe. Now, there are people who teach that in the New Testament era, that in the church, we are still bound to give 10%. Um, and this is the only New Testament scripture that they can use to support that because Jesus said, this you ought to have done. So that's the phrase that they dwell on to say, see, in the New Testament, tithing is taught. Um, there's a problem with that. For one thing, you don't want your only support scripture to be when he was ripping on a Pharisee. Um, but also, Jesus hadn't died and risen from the dead yet. So the, remember, the Gospels are still a part of the Old Testament um, you know, time period. So there were, a lot, there were sacrifices given while Jesus was alive, too. That doesn't mean that we are supposed to sacrifice. I do think, I mean, the Bible makes it really clear, and Jesus goes on here quite a bit, how important it is that we give and that we give from our hearts, that we give willingly, that we give sacrificially. That's definitely commanded in Scripture. And I personally think that 10% should just be the tip of the iceberg of, of what we give. But I'm not going to say do that so that you know, you'll be in obedience to God. Because for some people to give 10%, they would be completely ripping God off because they could so much easier do that. For them to give 10% is nothing. For other people, they may be in a spot where there's just not 10% to give. And I don't think, and, and I think it's wrong when people give the idea that, well, the reason you're broke right now is because you're not tithing. So I don't care if you can't pay your, your rent or you can't you know, buy groceries. You need to cough up 10% of your money and give it, and then God's going to give you more. 
Um, that's ridiculous. And God, as far as God's concerned, everything we have belongs to him. So you do have to deal with, okay, how much do I dare spend on myself, um, no matter who you are? But there are times when you know, you're not able to give. He certainly understands. We're not under that Old Testament thing where you had to pay him back with interest. Um, that's, they did. They had to pay 20% interest if they didn't, if they didn't tithe. Thank God um, we're not in that kind of a situation. Um, most people estimate that of all people who attend church every week, at least once a week, um, on the average, there's a tithe of about 1.5% that comes from them. So we would owe a lot if we had to pay that back at 20% interest. Um, the New Testament says, you are not to give grudgingly or of necessity. You just give what you want. Um, but the New Testament does teach a lot about the fact that if you give, then you'll be building up treasures in heaven. We're going to see Jesus talk about that later in this passage. Um, and also that God will bless. And so when you give, that he will certainly return it to you. And so that's just a principle that the New Testament teaches. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. Um, you can spend all your money, and he'll still love you. Um, but you'll be blessed if you, if you participate in what he is doing, and that's really what the New Testament teaches. Now Jesus goes on and says, oh, and of course, the point is, you pass up judgment and the love of God. You give money, but you don't care about people, and you aren't treating people fairly. And so that's way more important to be, you know, if you're in a spot, hey, the first thing you want to do is see if your life is living a life of love. If you're not, don't think you're great because you're giving money to the Lord. He would just say, you know what, keep it until you learn to treat people nicely, <laughs> until you care about others, until you're walking in obedience, he would say, I don't, I don't need your money. But he told them, yeah, don't ignore the obvious things. Woe to you, Pharisees, verse 43, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. He goes, you guys love the attention. You sit on the front row. No, I'm just kidding, you guys. <laughs> on the front row. <laughs> you know, they would go somewhere and they wanted to make sure they had the best seats that they could possibly have. And he goes, and you love it when people make a big deal about you. He goes, woe to you. You're like graves. <laughs> you are like you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. You're just dead inside. You're gross inside, but you look really good on the outside. You ever know people who are really beautiful on the inside, but the outside is, you know, maybe you see them in a bad day, bad hair day, or a no hair day, or whatever, and you just go, well, inner beauty is something that we talked about this Sunday, too, that, that is important to God. And so you want to develop that inner beauty so that people don't go, yeah, you look pretty good, but until I got to know you. You don't want to be somebody who makes a great first impression, but then people can't stand you after a while because you're such a jerk. <laughs> so then one of the lawyers, he was talking to the Pharisees, so now the lawyers pipe up. And remember, lawyers in those days were people who studied the law and were experts on the commandments of the law. Answered and said to him, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. They go, now wait a minute, you're picking on the Pharisees. 
you know, that could be taken as insulting to us as well. And he said, okay, woe to you also, lawyers. <laughs> For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Another time he said this about the Pharisees. What a damning judgment that he said, you're putting burdens on people and you can't carry it. You know, and, and this is something that we need to be so careful of. When you're a teacher, you really need to be careful of it. But even as a Christian, when you're talking to other people, are you telling people to do stuff that you're not sure that you could do it or maybe you haven't even done it and yet you're upset with other people for not doing it? I remember one time... Uh, I knew a couple and they were really struggling and about to get a divorce. And it was really a ugly, there were a lot of bad things in the relationship. But I, you know, I knew what, I thought I had my standard spiel down, you know, from seminary. And I was, but I was having a hard time telling them, you know, you have to stay together. And so I went and talked to Pastor Chuck and he said, Dave, I don't know. But he said, I have a hard time telling people to do something that I don't know if I could do it myself. And, I, and that's profound in my mind because to do otherwise, to tell someone to do something that you wouldn't do um, is the epitome of hypocrisy. And so he says, you guys, that's what you guys do. Woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. You're just like your fathers. They killed the prophets and you guys celebrate them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. He said, you guys talk about the good old prophets but you're the ones who are about to cooperate in killing the ultimate prophet, the Lord of glory. And he said, you're going to be held responsible. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. That's over in Second Chronicles 24, and probably the last of the prophets to be murdered by people who didn't like what he was saying. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. He goes, you lump it all together, good people have always been killed by bad people. And you know which kind you are, and you guys are all going to be held accountable for what you've done. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. They had the scriptures. They should have been able to figure out who Jesus was. You did not enter in yourselves and those who were entering in you hindered. Not only are you not coming and accepting me as Lord, but other people you're chasing away. It's bad enough to fail ourselves to do what God wants us to do. But the worst judgment comes on those who actually stumble and trip up other people and cause them to miss out. I mean, I, you know, I have to take responsibility for what I do, but some of the heaviest responsibility that I have is, do I preach in such a way that it could drive people away? Or do I live my life in such a way that people will discount what it is that I teach? And, and that's what he's saying here. This is what you guys do. It's not only that you're not obeying, 
but you're stumbling other people as well, and you're keeping them away. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things. They were just peppering him with questions, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. From then on, they followed him. They recorded what he said. They picked away at it. They were just looking for something wrong in what he said. And by the way, this attitude is not completely dead today. There are some people who will still, and there have been times when I've caught myself doing this, so I'm not going to say those people, those people. I've done the same where I'm not sure about someone, so I'll listen to them, seeing if I can hear them say something weird. Or there's someone who's kind of popular, so get their book and scrutinize it and try to find, is there anything here that's off base? And that's not a healthy way to live your life. You have more important things to do. Uh, you know, every popular Christian book that ever comes out, there is a, a field day of people trying to scrutinize it, picking apart every word and phrase and every quote and, and hoping to be able to discern that, oh, this is really bad. So, I mean, people who will, if Rick Warren writes a book and it's popular, people are analyzing it, criticizing what version of the Bible he uses for his quotes or things like that. You know, other people, the book The Shack came out a few years ago, bestseller, and it was a novel. And you can, I wasn't nuts about the book. I mean, I saw some value to it. I, I, I saw some things that were probably done poorly in the book. But I mean, a lot of people were drawn closer to the Lord by it and testifying of that. Thousands and thousands of people got saved from the influence of the book. But then there were other people who were just like picking at it and just going, well, this is wrong and this might mean this and trying to brand the guy as a new age prophet or something. And he was anything but that. He was a Christian. And, and uh, you know, but people love to find something wrong in someone else. And I'm the same. However, I don't want to be like what Jesus said was disgusting. These guys laying in wait, trying to trap somebody, trying to trip somebody up. I'd rather spend my time and energy appreciating the good that's there, listening to what God says to me, doing what he's called me to do. I, I really don't want to focus my life in some kind of a negative way. Um, Jesus said earlier, we saw where he, you know, he just said, look, don't go call fire down from heaven on somebody because they're not a part of our club or they don't do things our way. If they're not against us, they're for us. Don't worry about it. And that's kind of the idea here. Chapter 12, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven is used as a symbol of sin throughout the scriptures um, because when you take just a little bit of leaven and put it in a whole big pile of dough, the whole dough is affected by the leaven and rises. And so he's likening the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, their phoniness, and saying, be careful. Now what this tells us is, this kind of hypocrisy isn't so hard to fall into. It's a danger to all of us. And I believe that we should constantly be taking Jesus' advice and scrutinizing ourselves 
to make sure that we are not being hypocritical, that we are not being phony, that we are not allowing some leaven to come in and turn us into something that is that, that in spirit goes against everything that Jesus wants to say. He says, There is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. In other words, whatever you say or do, it could come out into the light. So don't have a secret agenda. Don't be playing one person off against another. Don't be politicking. Just, just say it. Just live openly. Don't live like you have a lot to hide from. Make your life an open book and you don't have to worry about that. To be a hypocrite, to talk one game and live another one, someday you're going to be exposed. And then he says, and I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after they have no more that they can do. I'll show you who you should be afraid of. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In other words, if you fear God, you won't have to fear anyone else. But if you don't fear God, you'll be afraid of everyone else. Over in Proverbs, like around chapter 29, um, it's right at the top of the page, I know, but he says, says, uh, the wicked flees when no one pursues but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And if you're walking right and consistently, you don't have to be paranoid. You don't have to be always worried and running and worrying what are people looking at. You know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to bother you that much that they're putting cameras up everywhere and that Google can spy on your email or whatever. They can spy on my email. Anybody who wants can read my email anytime they want. And they'll just hear the gospel and they'll see what I'm praying for and things like that. But if you don't fear God, then you're making a big mistake. And there are a lot of people who care a lot more about what people think of them than they care about what God thinks of them. And hey, I've been there and I struggle with that. Because I do care what people think of me. It's really hard not to. Um, but, and, and so often if I screw up in some way, I just I hope nobody finds out. But that shouldn't even be the way we look at it. See, the only one that really matters already found out. And anybody else, what they think, it really doesn't matter. Their opinions shouldn't matter to us. We should live our lives for an audience of one, God. We should live to please him. And, and, and so often, we become mortified when people find out that we mess up, but it should, it's an indication, really, we weren't afraid of God in the first place. And so Jesus says, just fear God, and then you won't have to worry about anybody else. And then he says, are, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered? That's harder for some of you than for others of us. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, you're way more valuable than a bird, but God cares about all the birds. And so God cares about you. Now, it doesn't mean that a bird never dies. It doesn't mean that you're never going to die. What it means is God sees everything that's going on. And he cares about you more than he cares about any animal. Sorry to you, animal lovers. Um, This isn't just sparrows, this is all animals. God has a unique 
passion for people. He sent his son to die for us. And so Jesus is just going, God cares about you, so worry about what he thinks. Don't worry about what anybody else is going to do. God is there. And then he says, also I say to you, verse 8, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now he's not talking about an altar call, but what he's saying is, if you're a Christian, admit it. Don't deny, don't pretend like you don't believe in him. Why? Because that's showing that you're worried more about what people think than what you care about what God thinks. So you just share the Lord with people. You let people know, yeah, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. You don't need to beat him over the head with it. You don't have to have it plastered all over every piece of clothes that you own or anything. But the idea is don't be so afraid that you don't speak up. Don't be so worried about what people think that you won't even tell them about Jesus. Um, because he says, hey, if you, if you deny me, then how will it feel when I deny you? And it might be that if you just want to deny it enough, maybe you don't even have a relationship with him. And so he goes on and says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. So he said, I'm not frail and sensitive. You can say something against me, and if you repent, I'll forgive you. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, this is something that scares a lot of people. It's one of the most common questions that we get, probably, is, you know, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not saying things against the Holy Spirit. It's not, you know, thinking, oh, maybe he's not real. or It's not some momentary thing that happens. The role of the Holy Spirit, as John shows us in John chapter 15 and 16, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to speak to us of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is the one who was drawing us to Christ. And he's the one who shows us Jesus, and he's the one who continues to work in our lives. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that won't be forgiven is if you just continue to resist that which he is doing. Now, at what point does it become unforgivable? At the point when you die. There's nothing else that can be done. Plenty of people have, have resisted the Holy Spirit for I've known people who resisted him for 70 years and then repented and came to Jesus. So obviously just resisting Jesus is not what it's talking about. But it's talking about the whole package of really never turning to him and fighting against him. At some point, it just you get so used to hearing the truth that you become immune to it. And there are people I've seen who seem that way. But it's not something that you should necessarily worry about unless you've just been resisting him and now you're finding yourself just not caring anymore. Anyone who comes to me and says, well, I'm afraid that I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and lost my salvation, I go, don't worry, you haven't. Because if you did, you wouldn't care. If you want to be saved, you're saved. If you have come to Jesus and you go, Jesus, I, I don't care what else you've done. I don't care what horrible things you've said. I don't care what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter. If you want to be with him, if you want to walk with him, 
You're his. The only way that can happen is if the Holy Spirit is in your life. So don't worry about this unless you really don't care. And if there's anyone who's listening and is just going, I don't even care, well, you might be concerned because maybe you are shutting yourself off to the Spirit, but it's not too late. Repent. That's the point. Turn to him and, and receive him. And so he says, the, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, don't worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In the context, this is all about whether or not people profess Jesus as Christ. They were brought before authorities and said, you know, and grilled to try to find out if they ought to be killed or not for being Christians. And so he first of all says, you know, if you say something against Jesus, you could be forgiven, just repent. But, he said, when you find yourself in these spots, you need the Holy Spirit on your side because he will show you what you need to say. And this is a basic principle that's true for all of us, whatever circumstance we're in. If we're walking in the Spirit and if we've been communing with him, then he will speak to us and he'll tell us what we need to say in any circumstance, no matter how difficult it is. And I'm sure many of you have had that experience where you're in a situation and it's caught by, you're caught by surprise. This isn't talking about just like, well, you know, I was busy today, so I didn't prepare a Bible study, but I just figured the Holy Spirit would give me one. That's presumption. But you're in a situation that you couldn't have foreseen, and now it's like, what do I say? And the Holy Spirit just, say, and, and you say something, and even as you're saying it, you're going, wow, where did that come from? Like Peter saying, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. So if you've walked with the Lord with any period of time, you've probably seen him give you answers that you didn't even know you had. And that's really what he's talking about here in any situation. Now he gives the parable of a rich fool. And the setup is somebody came out of the crowd and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> guy trying to get Jesus involved in their family squabbles. I can't even tell you how many times I've been in that spot where people are like, we're having a fight. Can you settle it for us? Well, Jesus didn't want to, so I don't know why I should. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, wanting things that someone else has. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. He saw the deeper problem. It wasn't whether or not the inheritance was divided fairly. He was going, why do you even care that much? And, and this is true often when we have squabbles with people, especially about material things, because you know we're like, I want what's mine. And Jesus would just go, interesting, why is it that big of a deal to you? Why do you care so much about that? Why do you get upset if you go to a store and, you know, you get ripped off? You buy something that wasn't what you thought, or you, you know, you buy something on eBay and you don't get it. Okay, you have certain things that you can do if you pay by a credit card or whatever, but why is it that big of a deal to you? Are you that attached to what you own that it owns you? And that's kind of what he's getting at here. There's a deeper 
issue involved when you're constantly fighting over material things. And he says, be careful of covetousness. Again, this is something that can creep up on anyone. And look at this principle. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Your life is not equal to what you have. Don't act like it is. Don't act like when you lose what you have, you've lost a part of yourself. You haven't. It's Stuff is just stuff. Money is just money. You want to be responsible with it while you have it, but if you lose it, easy come, easy go. Don't act like you lost a piece of yourself. For a lot of people, when they lose money, they do feel like they lost a piece of themselves because they thought that life was all about what you have. But Jesus is saying, life is not about what you have. That doesn't define you. That doesn't value you. And then he goes on and says, uh, he spoke a parable. And he said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And then I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So the guy's saying, I got a lot, but I need more. And I need to make sure that I have enough garage space to hold more. And eventually, once I look at my 401ks and my pension and my savings and my stocks and my bonds, and I, once I see it all and it's like, okay, now I can relax. And that's what this guy was doing. And we would think, what's wrong with that? I mean, that's the American dream. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? He goes, you don't even know that you're going to be alive tomorrow. So if you had to cash in your chips right now, what have you done with your life? Is it really about what you have? And then he goes on and says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that's an interesting spin to put on it, an interesting twist to bring into it. He said, you know, some of you guys are planning on someday doing something for God, someday serving Him, someday giving to Him, and you have these big dreams, and we've all heard it. You know, everybody who, Christian, whoever starts a business, acts like, someday, man, this thing is going to be booming they, ever since the VisiCalc was first invented, the first spreadsheet, you have this capacity to project. If this happens this way, then I'm going to make this much money. And when I do, boy, I'm going to give plenty to God. Hey, you don't know what's going to be here tomorrow. And you don't know when somebody's going to hit delete on your spreadsheet or on the economy or on your investments. <laughs> so he says, now... Lay up treasure in heaven. Now decide to put your time and your energy and your money and your possessions to work for things that matter. And it might be that helping someone else who needs it, it might be that giving to the Lord's work, it might be that giving time when you don't have a lot of time will actually be better and pay off greater 
than if you're thinking, I'm going to work really hard so that someday I can finally serve God. This is the time to give. This is the time to serve. This is the time to have your priorities straight, not later. And Jesus talks about that quite a bit. Now he says to his disciples, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. We talked about this Greek word that's translated here, worry, on Sunday. It's a word that means to be divided up in chunks. Or actually, we talked about it over in Luke chapter 10 when we talked about the uh, uh, Mary and Martha. When Jesus said, you're worried about many things, the idea is you're all cut up in pieces. You're torn, you're divided. He said, don't do that. About your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They don't have storehouses or barns, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Birds don't worry, you don't need to either. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature, his height? If you then are not able to do the least, like make yourself taller, why are you anxious for the rest? There was a guy years ago who wanted to be a police officer for LAPD. But they had a rule that you had to be a certain height in order to do it. Since then, with the American Disabilities Act and everything, they threw that out. But at this point, he was like, Two inches too short, and always dreamed of being a cop. And so he hung himself in his closet in a harness, hoping that his body would stretch. And it stretched a little bit, but it still wasn't enough. So he beat himself on the head with a board so that his head would swell up so that he could make the right height. And he still came up a half an inch short, but they hired him. (laughs) They thought, you're our kind of guy. So, but a cubit's a lot further than that. You couldn't get your head to swell that much. So he goes, you can't even do that. What are you worried about? And uh, he says, look at the lilies. They don't work. They're taken care of. If God clothes the grass that comes and goes, how much more is he going to clothe you? Oh, ye of little faith. Verse 29, and don't seek what you should eat or what you should drink. Don't focus on that or have an anxious mind. The word there is meteorizomai. It means to lift up off the ground. Like, get, come back to earth. Quit going off like a rocket ship over these things. All these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Put God first. Everything else will be taken care of. Don't fear, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. If you have a lot of stuff, sell some of it and help somebody with it. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also Jesus talks a lot about money, more than almost any other subject. Um, And what he's saying is you have a lot of stuff. Why don't you sell some of your stuff and give the money to somebody who could benefit from it, turn it over to the Lord to do his work. And, And he goes, you know, the truth is that'll last a lot longer than whatever the stuff is that you have. And not only that, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Um, your heart follows your treasure. Your treasure follows your heart. And so you look at where you spend your money, and you'll see what you care about the most. And he says, if you want to care about more important things, then take some of your money away from some of these goofy things that you do and invest your money in something that's going to last for eternity instead. Do you really need all those extra movie channels? Do you really need to have you know, an extra car that you don't drive? Do you really need to have all those toys and all that stuff you don't even use? And does your, Do you need that much furniture, that many clothes, that many pairs of shoes? He goes, that's where your heart is. So get rid of some of that stuff, and your heart will have to get fixed on something else, and it could be a really good thing. Because if you put more of your resources toward things of the Lord, you'll also find that your heart is more attached to Him. Those of you, I mean, you know how it is every year when we do the shoeboxes for Mexico. When you pack shoeboxes and you shop for them, it's so exciting to see kids getting those. And I know when you see a picture and it's like, that's mine, that was the one I packed, you have an investment. It's a special thing to you. Just like when you go over on a short-term missions trip, now you've invested in those people and now you care much more about what goes on with them. And so that's just what Jesus is saying. Take your treasure and adjust it and put it where your heart is, where you want your heart to be, and you'll find that your heart follows your treasure. Then he says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Be like servants who can't wait for their master to get home. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will... He will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come to the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. The master is going to be happy if he comes home and the servants are there waiting to serve him. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He goes, if you're in a house and you knew a thief was coming, you'd be ready. If you're a servant and you knew your boss is coming, you'd be ready. People just tend to work differently when they know the boss is around as opposed to when the boss is out of town. And so he says, you need to be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. So we need to be ready. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? That's a legitimate question. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward? So somebody wants to be a faithful and wise steward, and his master will make him a ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He goes, this is just for people who want to be rewarded by the master when he gets back. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. And we're promised by the Lord that he will make us a a kingdom of priests, that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ forever if we're ready. So he says that's what's happening. If you know that that's at stake, are you going to be ready? But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming 
and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he isn't aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, will shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So, he says, you need to expect the master to come back at any time. And he said, generally, if people know the master's not coming back, they'll start flaking. They'll, they won't treat people properly, because they'll just say, oh, my master delays his coming. Now, this isn't like a really rock-solid argument for um, the fact that Jesus can come at any time, but it certainly seems to be what he's saying. There are some people who believe in an eschatology that doesn't believe in what we call the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus could come back at any point. Now, Jesus seemed to think it makes a difference whether you believe that the master can come at any time, because he says the people who say the master's delaying his coming, they will tend to flake out and treat people poorly. But the one who thinks he could come at any time, they are going to be on their best behavior. So I didn't make that up. Uh, Chuck Smith, Hal Lindsey, nobody made, this was Jesus. And so if you are going to hold to a different eschatological position than to believe that Jesus can come back at any time, then you have to figure out what in the world this means. And I'm sure people can, can make up some reason as to why it doesn't mean what it seems to obviously mean. But here Jesus' point was, if you know then you're held accountable. And there's a greater judgment on people who know and don't prepare themselves than on people who don't know. So people who have heard and know the truth are held accountable in a greater way than people who haven't heard. But the truth is you ought to be ready. You should believe that he could come at any time. At least to me it seems to really clearly say that. So um, that's what I believe. I believe Jesus could come back at any time. But I believe, as Jesus said, he's going to come when you don't expect it. So if everybody does the math and predicts a certain date of Jesus' return, one thing I predict for sure, it won't be that day. Um, so it's not going to be when the Mayan calendar says or any cult or anybody else says. It's going to be a surprise. Could happen right now. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't have to tear down all these decorations. <laughs> so now he says... I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I'm going to shake things up, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it's accomplished. He goes, before I can judge and straighten things out, as I would like to do, um, I have something I have to do first, and that is I need to die. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all but rather division. Now, it's not that he doesn't want peace on earth or that he won't eventually bring peace on earth, even as the angel prophesied before he was born, but he said, right now, this isn't the time for me to bring peace on earth. I need to accomplish something first. And he said, when I bring my message, it's going to shake a lot of people up. It's a radical message that divides people. Because he goes on and says, from now on, there'll be five in one house that'll be divided, three against two and two against three. 
Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He said, families are going to be split right down the middle because either you're going to believe me or you're not going to believe me. And some of you have seen that happen in your families where somebody comes to Christ and it's like, okay then, we're cutting you off, you're not a part of us. Jesus said that's to be expected. The message that I have is one that shakes people up. And then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, oh, there's going to be hot weather when the Santa Anas are there. And there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky. You can tell the weather. But how is it you don't discern this time? You don't even realize this is the time of salvation. And this is the time when Messiah is here. You don't get that, but you can predict the weather. And so he said, uh, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? Why don't you even look at what's obvious? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. The idea is, if you're finding yourself in a legal squabble with somebody, do you realize the time is short? You don't have time to mess with that kind of stuff. You don't have time to be distracted. So he said, settle out of court, get it over with, don't be all covetous, don't be obsessed with your money. You do not, your master is coming, and you just cannot afford to be caught up in those battles all the time. He goes, you have something more important to do than to be dragged into court and to let somebody do, you know, to pull you into that. I hate it whenever I have to go to court or I have to testify or whenever I've been sued or it's just, it's such a big stinking waste of time. And nobody wins except the attorneys. And so Jesus is having that kind of priority and just going, If there's a way you can avoid it, avoid it. Sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes it has to happen. But uh, he goes, the time is short. If you can realize that, have your priorities straight. Now in chapter 13, he says, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Apparently a group of Galileans were in Jerusalem, and while they were there to commit their sacrifices at the temple, Pilate came and killed them for um, something that they had done that was wrong, and so it was a big famous um, deal that they were kind of telling Jesus what had happened. We don't have uh, Josephus or anyone tells about this, but but it was not uncommon for Pilate to come down because Herod was ruling down there in Judah, and... uh, Pilate and Herod didn't get along very well, and so whenever he had an excuse, he would come in and and do this. And so these guys did something, and they go, what do you think about that? And Jesus said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He goes, you're focusing on those people who just got the death penalty? How about looking at yourself? Instead of going, ooh, what did they do with that person or what's going to happen with this? It's like, look at yourself. Repent yourself. Don't, don't just be glued to the news about other people getting punished. 
ooh, Lindsay's in jail. Hey, we all deserve to be in jail for plenty of things. And he says, unless you repent, you're going to be in just as much trouble. Those, those uh, 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them brings up another thing that had happened. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He goes, just like anybody else, eventually you're going to stand judgment for what you've done. And then he tells the parable of the fig tree, and he said there was a guy who had a fig tree in his vineyard. Fruit didn't grow on it for three years. So he came and he told the gardener, cut it down. It's not doing any good. And the guy said, sir, let it alone this year also. Give me another year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit, great. If not, after that, you can cut it down. The picture is of Israel as the vine, which is a typical thing that Jesus uses, and he's saying, you're not bearing fruit. Now, there may be somebody who's saying, give them another chance, so maybe that can happen, but right now, you're not bearing fruit, and pretty soon, if you're not bearing fruit, you're going to be cut down, and so just a warning to know that the time is short. While he was teaching in the synagogue, a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, she's been bent over and couldn't raise up. She had something that Uh, was causing her to be doubled over, and she had been like that for 18 years. And he said, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Imagine 18 years of hunched over, and he touches her, and she could stand up straight. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. And uh, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the crowd, Look, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath. He's telling people, quit being healed on the Sabbath. There are six other days. And Jesus answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? He goes, you guys do stuff on the Sabbath. Come on. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, Think of it, for 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. They were embarrassed. They, they looked stupid. And all the multitude rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by him. And then the parable of the mustard seed, he said, what's the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. So two parables that go together. Birds are indicative of evil in the scriptures, as is leaven. Mustard was a small seed, and it's an herb that's supposed to grow in a little bush. But what he's saying is, this thing grew up like a big tree. It shot up bigger than what it was really supposed to be. And like leaven that's put in a lump of dough, and the whole dough is affected, those are analogous. Probably what he is referring to, and commentators differ quite a bit on this, but I think probably the best explanation is he's, he's saying... Things may grow in an amazing way, but just because something grows doesn't mean that it's all of God. 
Um, he's probably referring to the church and how, man, the church grows, but an awful lot that the church ends up doing isn't what the church is supposed to do. The church just keeps getting more and more programs and hype and more and more things, and he's just going, you know what? A lot of the birds nesting in us, a lot of this unusual growth is not necessarily a sign of what God is doing. Because in the same way that a little leaven causes a lump of dough to really grow up, maybe what you're doing is just being puffed up. Like that TV commercial for the chicken that they give the hormones to and they're all bloated, you know? He's saying, be careful. Don't just assume that because something's getting bigger that that's a good thing. There's an ideal size. There's a, there's a perfect way that God wants to do what he does. And a lot of times, because we are a mixed multitude, we do more than what we're supposed to do. And it's a good warning for the church anytime to just go, hey, let's not just get obsessed with what more can we do. As you know, I've been really trying to focus lately on how we can cut down what we do and just do what God has called us and give people a little free time and, and make sure that they're involved in fellowship and things like that. So that's why I canceled Wednesday nights for a period of time and canceled everything else. And you know, I still get pressured all the time by people who want this program or that thing going on. But you know what? This, that's not how it works. That's not how God does what he does. The idea isn't just, let's just do more and more and more. That's an excuse for a shallow faith that I don't really want to get involved, so it helps if we just have a whole bunch of junk going on. And that's how the church gets into businesses that they really shouldn't be into, um, and that's probably what Jesus is talking about. And we will stop there and pick up next week with verse 22. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. The things that you've told us tonight in it, all those things that Jesus did and those things that he taught, and we want to receive from him all the truths and all of the important things that, God, you want us to hear. And so we're all living different lives, going through different stuff, but here we are we really do want to hear your word, and we want it to take root in our lives. We want to bring glory to you and be those who are faithful to you. So please convict us of any area of our life whereby the word has pointed out to us some of our errors tonight. And then, Lord, help us to walk faithfully with you and for you. Help us to give more faithfully. Help us to have our heart where it belongs. Help us to have your priorities. Deliver us from materialism and covetousness. Protect us from hypocrisy, being phonies as Christians. Lord, we are your people and we love you. And we thank you for all that you do and all that you're going to continue to do. I thank you for the opportunities that you will give each of us the rest of this week as we have tonight and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and we will all have an opportunity to confess you before men sometime during those days. And I pray that we will confess you, that we will be willing to talk about you and to proclaim you to people when you provide an opportunity and when your spirit speaks within our heart and give us the words to say. Thanks for this evening, and we bless you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys.